Chapter 25. The Oblong During the following week, the work at the cave progressed rapidly towards completion. Although the hours of daylight being so few, the men worked only from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m. They had their breakfast before they came. This made 40 hours a week, so that those who were paid sevenpence an hour earned one pound three and four, and those who got sixpence drew one pound one and eight. Those whose wages were fivepence an hour were paid the princely sum of sixteen shillings and eightpence for their hard work labour, and those whose rate was fourpence halfpenny picked up fifteen shillings. And yet there are people who have the insolence to say that drink is the cause of poverty. And many of the persons who say this spend more money than that on drink themselves every day in their useless lives. By Tuesday night, all the inside was finished with the exception of the kitchen and the scullery. The painting of the kitchen had been delayed owing to the non-arrival of the new cooking range, and the scullery was still used as the paint shop. Outside work was also nearly finished. All the first coating was done, and the setting coat and coating was being proceeded with. According to the specification, all the outside woodwork was supposed to have three coats, and the guttering, rainpipes, and other ironwork, two coats. But Crass and Hunter had arranged to make two coats do for most of the windows and the woodwork, and all the ironwork was to be made do with one coat only. The windows were painted in two colours. The sashes were dark green, and the frames were white. All the rest, gables, doors, railings, guttering, etc., was dark green, and all the dark green paint was made with boiled linseed oil and varnish, no turpentine being allowed to be used on that part of the work. "'Well, this is some bloody fine stuff to have to use, ain't it?' remarked Harlow at Philpot on Wednesday morning. "'It's more like a lot of treacle than anything else.' "'Yeah, it won't half blister next summer when it gets a bit of sun on it,' replied Philpot with a grin. "'Yeah, I suppose they're afraid that if what they was to put a little turps in, it wouldn't bear out and they'd have to give it another coat then, huh?' "'Well, you can bet your life that's the reason,' said Philpot. "'They're all the same. I mean to pinch a drop to put in mine as soon as Crass is gone.' "'Gone where?' "'Why, didn't you know? There's another funeral on today.' Did you see that coffin plate what Owen was writing in the dorming room last Saturday morning? No, I wasn't there. Don't you remember it was I was sent away to do the ceiling and a bit of painting over at Windley? Oh, yeah, of course, I forgot, exclaimed Philpot. I reckon Crass and Slime must be making a small fortune out of all those funerals, said Arlen. This makes the fourth in the last fortnight. What's it then they get for them? What do they get for the funerals, eh? Mm, I think it's a shilling for taking home the coffin and lifting the corpse and four bob for the funeral. That's five bob altogether. Yeah, well, that's a bit of all right, isn't it, said Harlow. A couple of them in a week, besides your week's wages, eh? Five bob for two or three hours' work? Not bad. Yeah, well, the money's all right, mate, but as far as I'm concerned, they're welcome to it for my part. I don't want to go messing around with no corpses, replied Philpot with a shudder. Who is this last party who's dead, then? said Harlow, after a pause. It's a parson what used to belong to the Shining Light Chapel. He's been abroad for his holidays to Monte Carlo. 
Seems that he was uh, ill before he went away, but the change did him a lot of good. In fact, he was quite recovered, and he was coming back again. But when he was standing on the platform at Monte Carlo station, waiting for the train, a porter went into him with a barrel load of luggage and bowled him over. What? Blowed him over? Yeah, repeated Vaughan. Blowed up, busted, exploded, all into pieces. Yeah, but they swept them all up out into the coffin and now he's got to be planted this afternoon. Well, they maintained an awestruck silence and Philpot continued. I had a drink the other night with a butcher bloke while I used to serve with this parson with meat. We were talking about what a strange sort of death he was, but he said he wasn't at all surprised to hear it. The only thing as he wondered about was what the man didn't blow up long ago, considering the amount of grub he used to take and weigh away with him, you know. He says the quantities of stuff that he took there seemed to make other tradesmen take something chronic. We had tons of the stuff, well. What was the parson's name, then, said Harlow? Belcher. You must have noticed him bad town. Very fat chap, said Philpot. Sorry, you weren't there on Saturday to see the coffin plate. Frank called me in to see the wording when he'd finished. He had on it, Johnny Dab Belcher, born January the 1st, 1849, ascended December the 8th, 19-whatever. Oh, I know the bloke now, said Arlo. I remember my youngsters bringing home a subscription list that they'd got up at the Sunday school to send him away for an holiday because he was ill. I gave them a penny each to put on their cards because I didn't want them to feel mean about the other young'uns. Yeah, it's the same party. Two of the three young'uns asked me to give them something to put on at the time. I can see they've got another subscription list on now. I met one of Newman's children yesterday. She showed it to me. It's for an entertainment and a Christmas tree for all the children what goes to the Sunday school. So, I didn't mind giving just a trifle for anything like that. Seems to be getting colder, though, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's cold enough to freeze the ears off a brass monkey, remarked Easton as he descended from a ladder close by, placing his pot of paint on the ground. He began to warm his hands by rubbing and beating them together. He was trembling and his teeth were chattering with cold. I could just do with a nice pint of beer now, he said, as he stamped his feet on the ground. You know what, that's just what I was thinking, said Philpot wistfully. And what's more, I mean to have one too, dinner time, and we'll nip down the cricketers, even if I don't get back till a few minutes after one. It won't matter, because Crast and Nimrod will be gone to the funeral, won't they? Will you bring me a pint back with you, in a bottle? asked Easton. Yeah, certainly, said Philpot. Harlow said nothing. He also would have liked a pint of beer, but, as was usual with him, he was not the necessary cash available. Having restored the circulation to a certain extent, they now resumed their work, and only just in time, because a few minutes afterwards they observed misery peeping round the corner of the house at them, and they wondered... How long he'd been there, and whether he'd overheard their conversation. At twelve o'clock, Crass and Slime cleared off in a great hurry, and a little while afterwards, Philpot took off his apron and put on his coat to go to the cricketers. When the others found out where he was going, several of them asked him to bring back a drink for them. Then someone suggested that 
all those who wanted some beer should give twopence each. And this was done. One shilling and fourpence was collected and given to Philpot, who was going to bring back a gallon of beer in a jar. He promised to get back as soon as ever he could, and some of the shareholders decided not to drink any tea with their dinners, but to wait for the beer, although they knew that it would be nearly time to resume work before they could get back. It would be a quarter to one at the very earliest, they thought. The minutes dragged slowly by, and after a while the only man on the job who had a watch began to lose his temper and refused to answer any more inquiries concerning the time. So, presently, Bert was sent up to the top of the house to look at the church clock, which was visible therefrom. When he came back down, he reported it was ten minutes to one. Symptoms of anxiety now began to manifest themselves amongst the shareholders, several of whom went down to the main road to see if Philpot was in sight yet, but each returned with the same report. They could see nothing of him. No one was formally in charge of the job during Crass's absence, but they all returned to their work promptly at one, because they feared that Sawkins or some other sneak might report any irregularity to Crass or Misery. At a quarter past one, Philpot was still missing, and the uneasiness of the shareholders began to develop into a panic. Some of them plainly expressed the opinion that he had gone on the razzle with the money. As time went on, he became the general of opinion to be certain. At two o'clock, all hope of his return having been abandoned, two or three of the shareholders went and drank some of the cold tea. And their fears were only too well founded, for they saw no more of Philpot till the next morning. When he arrived, looking very sheepish and repentant, and promised to refund all the money on Saturday, he also made a long, rambling statement from which it appeared that on his way to the cricketers he met a couple of chaps who he knew who were out of work, and he invited them to come and have a drink. And when they got to the pub, they found there was the semi-drunk and the besotted wretch, and one drink led to another, and they started arguing, and he'd forgotten all about the gallon of beer until he woke up this morning. Whilst Philpot was making his explanation, they were putting on their aprons and blouses, and Crass was serving out the lots of colour. Slime took no part in the conversation, but got ready as quickly as possible, and went outside to make a start. The reason for this haste soon became apparent to some of the others, because they noticed that he'd selected and commenced painting a large window that was so situated as to be sheltered from the keen wind that was blowing. The basement of the house was slightly below the level of the ground, and there was a sort of trench or area about three feet deep in front of the basement windows. The banks of this trench were covered with rose trees and evergreens, and the bottom was a mass of slimy, evil-smelling, rain-sodden earth, foul with the excrement of nocturnal animals. To second coat these basement windows, Philpot and Harlow had to get down into and stand in all this filth, which soaked through the worn and broken soles of their boots. As they worked, the thorns of the rose-trees caught and tore their clothing and lacerated the flesh of their half-frozen hands. Owen and Easton were working on ladders doing the windows immediately above Philpot and Harlow, and Sawkins, on another ladder, was painting one of the gables, and the other men were working at different parts of the outside of the house. 
The boy, Bert, was painting the iron railings of the front fence, and the weather was bitterly cold. The sun was concealed by the dreary expanse of grey cloud that just covered the wintry sky. As they stood there, working most of the time that they were almost perfectly motionless, the only part of their bodies that were exercised being their right arms. The work that they were now doing required to be done very carefully and deliberately, otherwise the glass would be messed up, or the white paint on the frames would run into the dark green of the sashes, and both colours being wet at the same time, each man having two pots of paint and two sets of brushes. The wind was not blowing in sudden gusts, but swept by a strong, persistent current that penetrated their clothing and left them trembling and numb with cold. And it blew from the right, and it was all the worse on that account, because the right arm, being in use, left that side of the body fully exposed. They were also able to keep their left hands in their trouser pockets and the left arm close to the side most of the time, and that made a lot of difference. Another reason why it is worse when the wind strikes upon one from the right side is that the buttons on a man's coat are always on the right side, and consequently the wind gets underneath. Philpot realised all of this the more because some of the buttons of his coat and waistcoat were missing. As they worked on, trembling with cold, and with their teeth chattering, and their faces and hands became that of pale violet colour generally seen on the lips of a corpse. Their eyes became full of water, and the lids were red and inflamed, and Philpott's and Harlow's boots were soon wet through, with the water they absorbed from the damp ground, and their feet were sore and intensely painful with the cold. Their hands, of course, suffered most, becoming so numbed that they were unable to feel the brushes that they held. In fact, presently, as Philpott was taking a dip of colour, the brush fell from his hand into the pot, and then, finding that he was unable to move his fingers, he put his hand into his trouser pocket to thaw, and began to walk about, stamping his feet upon the ground. His example was quickly followed by Owen, Easton and Harlow, and they all went round the corner to the sheltered side of the house where Slime was working, and they began walking up and down, rubbing their hands, stamping their feet, and swinging their arms to warm themselves. "'If I thought my Nimrod wasn't coming, I'd put my overcoat on and work in it,' remarked Philpot. "'But you never knows when we expect the old bastard, and if he saw me in it, it would mean the bloody push, wouldn't it?' "'Yeah, well, I wouldn't interfere with our working if I did wear them, would it? "'In fact, we'd be able to work all the quicker if it wasn't so bloody cold.' "'Even if misery didn't come, I suppose Crass would have something to say if we did put them on,' continued Philpot. "'Yeah, well, you couldn't blame him if he did say something, could you?' said Slime offensively. "'Crass would, uh, would get into a row, wouldn't he, you know? "'And uh, he himself and Hunter they came and saw us working in overcoats, well, it would look ridiculous. Syme suffered less from the cold than any of them, not only because he had secured the most sheltered window, but also because he was better clothed than most of the rest. "'And what's Crass supposed to be doing inside, then?' asked Easton, as he tramped up and down, with his shoulders hunched up and his hands thrust deep into his pockets of his trousers. "'Well, blowed if I know,' said Philpot, messing about touching up or making colour, yeah? He never does his share of a job like this. 
He knows how to work things out all right for himself, doesn't he? What if he does? We'd do the same if he was in his place, and so would anyone else, said Slime. And he added sarcastically, Well, perhaps you give all the soft jobs to other people and do them all the rough for yourself then, would you? Slime knew that, although they were speaking of Crass, they were also alluding to himself. And as he replied to Philpot, he looked slyly at Owen, who had so far taken no part in the conversation. Yeah, well, it's not a question of what we would do, chimed in Harlow. It's a question of what's fair, isn't it? And it's not fair for Crass to pick up all the soft jobs for himself and leave all the rough ones for others. The fact that we might do the same if we had the chance doesn't make it right, does it? Yes, well, no one can be blamed for doing the best he can for himself under existing circumstances, said Owen, in reply to Slime's questioning look. That's the principle, isn't it, of the present system? Every man for himself, and the devil take the rest. For my own part, I don't pretend to practice unselfishness. I don't pretend to guide my actions by the rules laid down in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's certainly surprising to hear you who profess to be a follower of Christ, advocating selfishness. Or rather, it would be surprising if it were not for the name Christian had ceased to signify one who follows Christ, eh? Who has come to mean only a liar and a hypocrite. Slime made no answer. Possibly the fact that he was a true believer enabled him to bear this insult with meekness and humility. Wonder what time it is? interposed Philpot. Slime looked at his watch. It was nearly ten o'clock. Jesus Christ, is that all? growled Easton as they returned to work. Huh, two hours more before dinner. Only two more hours, but to these miserable, half-starved, ill-clad wretches standing there in the bitter wind that pierced their clothing and seemed to be tearing at their very hearts and lungs with icy fingers, it appeared like an eternity. To judge by the eagerness with which they longed for dinner-time, one might have thought that they had some glorious banquet to look forward to, instead of just the bread and cheese and onions or bloaters and stewed tea. Two more hours of torture before dinner, and three more hours after that. And then, thank God, it would be too dark to see any work any longer. It would have been much better for them if, instead of being free men, they had been slaves, and the property instead of the hirelings of Mr. Rushton. As it was, he would not have cared if one or all of them had become ill, or even died from the effects of the exposure. It made no difference to him at all. There were plenty of others out there who were out of work, on the verge of starvation. He would be very glad to take their places. But if they had been Rushton's property... Well, such work as this would have deferred until it would have been done without danger to the health and lives of the slaves. Or at any rate, even if it were proceeded with during such weather, their owner would have seen to it that they were properly clothed and fed, and he would have taken as much care of them as he would of a horse. People always take great care of their horses, of course. If they were to overwork a horse and make it ill... Well, it would cost something for medicine and the veterinary surgeon to say nothing of the animal's board and lodging. As if they were to work their horses to death, well, they would have to buy others. But none of these considerations applies to workmen. 
If they work a man to death, well, they can get another for nothing at the corner of the next street. You don't have to buy him. All they have to do is give him enough money to provide him with food and clothing of a kind while he's working for them. If they only make him ill, they will not have to feed him or provide him with medical care while he's laid up. He will either go without these things or pay for them himself. At the same time, it must be admitted that the workman scores over both the horses and the slave, inasmuch as he enjoys the priceless blessings of freedom. If he doesn't like the hirer's conditions, well, he doesn't have to accept them. He can refuse to work, and he can go and starve, and there's no ropes on him. He's a free man. He's an heir of all the ages. He enjoys perfect liberty, and he has the right to freely choose, which he will do, either submit or starve, eat dirt or eat nothing. The wind blew colder and colder. The sky, which at first had shown small patches of blue through the rifts of the massless clouds, had now become uniformly grey, and there was every indication of impending fall of snow. The men perceived this with conflicting feelings. If it did commence to snow, they would not be able to continue this work, and therefore they found themselves involuntarily wishing that it would snow, or rain, or hail, or anything that would stop the work. But on the other hand, if the weather prevented them from getting on with the outside, some of them would have to stand off, because the inside was practically finished. And none of them wished to lose any time if they could possibly help it, because, well, there was only ten more days before Christmas. The morning slowly wore away, and the snow did not fall. Their hands worked on in silence, for they were in no mood for talking, and only that, but they were afraid that Hunter or Rushton or Crass might be watching them from behind some bush or tree, or through some of the windows. This dread possessed them to such an extent that most of them were almost afraid even to look round, and they kept steadily on at work. None of them wished to spoil his chance of being kept on, or to help do the other house that it was reported Rushton and Co. were going to do up for Mr. Sweater. Twelve o'clock came at last, and Cress's whistle would scarcely cease to sound before they all assembled in the kitchen before the roaring fire. Sweater had sent in two tons of coal, and had given orders that fires were to lit every day in nearly every room to make the house habitable by Christmas. "'Yeah, well, I wonder if it's true as the firm's got another job to do for old Sweater. What do you think?' said Harlow as he toasted a bloater on the end of a pointed stick. "'True?' "'Nah,' said the man on the pail scornfully. "'It's all bogey. You know, that empty house, as they say, Sweater had bought, the one that Russian and Nimrod had seen looking at?' "'Yes,' said Harlow. The other men listened and evidently interested. "'Well, they wasn't pricing it up at all. The landlord of the house is abroad, and there were some plants in the garden as Rushton thought he'd like, and he was telling Misery which ones he wanted. And afterwards old Pontius Pilate came up with Ned Dawson in a truck, and they made two or three journeys and took bloody well near everything in the garden that was worth taking. What didn't get a Rushton's place went to Hunter's. The disappointment of their hopes for another job was almost forgotten in their interest in the story. "'Yeah, who told you about it?' said Arlo. "'Ned Dawson himself. Right enough what I say. Ask him.' 
Ned Dawson usually called Bundy's mate, had been away from a house for a few days down at the yard, doing odd jobs. He'd only come back to the cave that morning. On being appealed to, he corroborated Dick Wantley's statement. "'Yeah, they'll be getting themselves into trouble if they ain't careful,' remarked Easton. "'Oh, no, they won't. Rushton's too awful for that. It seems the agent is a pal of his, and they worked it out between them. "'What a bloody cheek, though,' thought Harlow. "'Oh, there's nothing to some of these things I've known them do before now,' said the man of the pail. "'Why, don't you remember back in the summer, that carved oak, all table, as Rushton pinched right out of the house on the Grand Parade, remember that?' "'Yeah.' That was a bit of all right too, wasn't it? cried Philpot. Some of the others laughed. You know that big house? The house we did up last summer. Number 596, Wondy continued, for the best and fit of those not in the know. Well, it had been empty for a long time, and we found this here table in the cupboard under the stairs. It's a bloody fine table, it was too. One of them bracket tables that you affix to a wall without no legs, you know? and it had half-round marble top to it, and underneath was a curved hoke figure, a mermaid with her arms up over her head, holding up the table top. Something splendid, really. The man on the pail waxed enthusiastic as he thought about it. Must have been worth at least five quid. Well, just as we pulled this here table out, who should come in but Rushton? And when he's seen it, he tells Grass to cover it over with a sack and not let nobody see it. Then he clears off the shop, and he sends the boy down with the truck, and as he took up to, as he took up to his own house. And he's there now, fixed in the front hall. I was sent up for the couple of months or so to paint and varnish the lobby doors. I've seen him myself. There's a picture there called The Day of Judgment, hanging on the wall just over it. Thunder and lightning, and earthquakes, and corpses getting up out of their graves, and something bloody horrible. And underneath the picture is a card with a text out of the Bible. Christ is the head of this house, the unknown guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Well, I was working there for three or four days and I got to know it off by heart, you know? Yeah, well, that takes the biscuit, doesn't it? said Philpot. Yeah, yeah, but the best of it was, the man of the pail proceeded, the best of it was, when old Misery heard about the table, he was so bloody wild because he didn't get it himself, that he went upstairs and pinched one of the Venetian blinds. Then he took up to his own house by the boy, and a few days afterwards, one of the carpenters had to go and fix it up in his bedroom. Yeah, wasn't it never found out then? inquired Easton. Well, there was a bit of talk about it. The agent wanted to know where he was, but Pontius Pilate swore black and white as there ain't been no blind in that room, and that was the end of it and the firm got the order to supply a new one. Huh. Well, I can't understand, though, is this. Who did the table belong to? said Arlow. It was a fixture belonging to the house, replied Wanley. But, well, I suppose the former tenants had some piece of furniture of their own, and they wanted to put it in the hall where this table was fixed. So they took it down and stored it away, and this here cupboard, you see. And when they left the house... Well, I suppose they didn't trouble to put it back again. Anyway, there was a mark on the wall where it used to be fixed, but when we did the staircase down, 
the place was papered over. I suppose the landlord or his agent never gave the table a thought. Anyhow, Rushton got away with it all right. A number of similar stories were related by several others concerning the doings of different employers that they'd worked for. But after a time, the conversation reverted to the subject that was uppermost in their thoughts. The impending slaughter and the improbability of being able to obtain another job considering the large number of men who were already out of employment. "'You know, I can't make it out myself,' replied Easton. "'Things seem to be getting worse every year. "'There don't seem to be half the work about here that there used to be. "'And even what there is is all messed up anyhow. "'And if the people who had it has done it can't afford to pay for it, "'what's going on?' "'Yeah,' said Arlo, "'it's true enough.' Why, well, just look at that work what's in the uh, one of them houses on the Grand Parade. People must have had more money to spend in those days. You know, all those massive curtain cornishes there with a drawing and dining room windows. Gilded solid. Why, well, nowadays they'd want all the bloody house done right through, inside and out, for the money it cost to gild one of them. Yeah, well, seems that nearly everybody's more or less armed up nowadays, said Philpot. I'm jiggered if I can understand it, but there it is. You should ask Owen to explain it to you, remarked Crass with a jeering laugh. He knows all about what the cause of poverty is, but he won't tell nobody. He's been going to tell us what it is for a long time past, but it don't seem to come off, do it? Crass had not yet had the opportunity of producing the obscure cutting that he'd made his remark in the hope of turning the conversation into a channel that would enable him to do so. But Owen didn't respond, and he went on reading his newspaper. "'Yeah, we ain't had no lectures at all lately, have we, eh?' said Harlow, to in an injured tone. "'I think it's about time Owen explained what the real cause of poverty is. You know, I'm beginning to get me anxious about it.' And all the others laughed.' 